Once again, may the Lord bless his people this evening, and uh, I'm grateful once more to be able to bring God's word uh, to you, and um, I thank uh, the pastor for his opening uh, remarks. It saves me from uh, uh, having opening remarks here, so, but I do appreciate your prayers, uh, as he has uh, mentioned. Uh, at this time, let us uh, quickly go... Uh, into God's Word uh, this evening. Um, we'll read from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 1 uh, to 9. Uh, excuse me, from verses 1 to 10, we'll read. That's Matthew, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. But before reading God's word, uh, let us open in prayer at this moment. Uh, Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so delighted to once more uh, return uh, to this place of uh, worship. And we, at this time, elevate our hearts to hear uh, from you. And we pray that you may help me speak with clarity And also that the power of your Holy Spirit may encourage us, strengthen us, and provide grace so that we may be able to apply these truths into our lives. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. That's Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 1. This is God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you, go, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These were Jesus' own words and chapter 6 is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And as Christ is preaching to a primarily Jewish audience. 
as he is reciting the pattern or model for prayer, one would expect that their ears would be pricked, that their attention would be caught by this portion of his prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. During the end of the Old Testament period, leading up to the first century, the Jewish hopes and expectations had increased, had transitioned from a humble hope of restoring the Davidic dynasty. And it had crescendoed into the first century of what's most scholars or some scholars would call messianism, where messianic expectations flourish in the thoughts and aspirations of the nation of Israel. And what is this expectation? One scholar puts it this way, The expectation of the coming was of a divinely anointed and empowered figure who inaugurates something dramatically new, something that even exceeds the idealized reigns of David, the son of Solomon. And we see the first words, the first preached words coming, leading up to chapter 6 in Matthew. With the arrival of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, 1, it states that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And notice what Matthew records, the first words of his sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And later we see John the Baptist removed from the scene. He gets arrested. However, the first words of Christ recorded by Matthew is in chapter 4, verse 17. The first words of his sermon. And notice what it says there. From that time, after Jesus experiencing temptation, being tempted by the evil one, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And his first words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew goes on to record, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In verse 23 of chapter 4. And this is what's leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. And notice the first words out of Christ's mouth on the Sermon of the Mount Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
in the New Testament, there has been a long discussion, since, especially since the 19th century, to define what is the kingdom of heaven. Although it's been mentioned many times in the New Testament, it is not fully fleshed out, the definition, the, the meaning, the whole totality of what this phrase means, the kingdom of heaven. For example, the early, some early dispensationalists, when reading the Sermon on the Mount, they came to this conclusion that the Sermon on the Mount really is referring to Christ's second coming. And after his second coming, he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, for a literal thousand years. And he will usher in a golden age of righteousness and peace and unity. So for some early dispensationalists, the kingdom had a future and solely future aspect to it. But if you notice in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is preaching to the here and now. He tells his audience, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it is very difficult to imagine persecution during this golden age. So we see that Christ is really referring to in the person of Christ. Matthew is trying to point out, highlight, that in the coming of Christ, that Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom. The king has arrived. And this king is the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. So the first observation we can make is that the kingdom of God is a present reality. The kingdom of God is a present reality. So in what sense can we pray, thy kingdom come? In what sense? But before we can answer this question... Before we can pray, thy kingdom come. We need to have a historical analysis from a biblical perspective provided by St. Augustine. He talks about when the angels rebelled against God The commencement of two kingdoms began. And Augustine describes it as two rival cities. There are two rival metropolises in human history. And he puts it in these terms. Two cities have been formed by two loves. 
the earthly by the love of, love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. And Calvin describes these two realities, not in terms of a metropolis, but in terms of kingdoms. According to Calvin, he divides it this way, into a spiritual kingdom and political kingdom. And he defines for us what is a spiritual kingdom. Quote, God reigns where men, both by denial of themselves and by contempt of the world and of earthly life, pledge themselves to his righteousness in order to aspire to a heavenly life. Thus, there are two parts to this kingdom. First, that God, by the power of his spirit, correct all the desires of the flesh, which by squadrons war against him. And second, that he shape all our thoughts in obedience to his rule. And as we see that, the essence of the kingdom of God, the main characteristic of this kingdom is that not only is it a present reality, but it's also a spiritual reality. And we can reduce this to a microcosm level from two cities or two kingdoms to two cities to two humanities. There's a spiritual humanity and an earthly humanity. Why is it called spiritual? Why is this called spiritual? Remember when Christ approached, or, or Nicodemus approached Christ, Christ talked about being born again. And he tells Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And of course, Nicodemus understands this type of birth in earthly terms. Well, how can we be born again? How can we re-enter our mother's womb? It is a spiritual kingdom because its source is divine. Its source is not creaturely. Its origin is not creaturely. Its source is divine. And specifically in John chapter 3, Christ is speaking about the creative work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. You cannot enter this kingdom unless you're born again. Have you come to faith and repentance in Christ? Do you believe that you're a sinner deserving of God's wrath and that Christ is your only redeemer, the one who paid for your sins, the one who received the full wrath of God on your behalf? If you believe that, you're born again. 
You cannot believe that apart from God's creative work by his Holy Spirit. You're given a new life. You're a new creation. And this new creation is spiritual because it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul speaks of this present reality, and he speaks of this spiritual reality in Romans chapter 14, as he's discussing matters of liberty of conscience. Those areas where God has left unto us a certain liberty of our conscience pertaining to certain matters. And in this context, it was a matter of eating and drinking certain things. But Paul tells the Romans, and he tells us, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual reality, a present reality. Nowadays, uh, facing the decadence of our culture and people in our times like to play uh, word games. Some churches are teaching that the issue of uh, homosexuality is an issue of matter of conscience, of liberty of conscience. Some have stated that in their own website as a result of the Supreme Court's decision to institutionalize the sin of homosexuality. And some of them use the argument, well, the, the, the Bible or the Greek never uses a, the literal term homosexuality. And they play these word games and isolate words from one another. Words occur together to communicate ideas. And the plain teaching of the scriptures on this matter is that it is an abomination for a man to sleep with a man. It's an abomination, the scriptures declare plainly. It doesn't need to use specific terms. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what we can extract from this is that Christ comes through the preaching of his word, accompanied by the power of his Holy Spirit, speaking new life into us. And what we can extract from this is that he comes to redemptively and savingly rule our lives. In the here and now, the spiritual reality, the present reality, is that Christ comes to redemptively rule our lives. 
Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is about the here and now. It's not talk, asking us whether we will live a Christ-like life in heaven. It is calling us to lead that life on earth as Jesus himself did to perfection. It is not a sermon about an ideal life in an ideal world, but about the kingdom life in a fallen world. The spiritual rule of Christ is a present and spiritual reality. It is a redemptive reality. It is a saving reality. And we can begin by by exercising and getting into this reality by exercising spiritual disciplines. Prayer. It should lead us, it should lead us to declare from our hearts the lordship of Christ in every aspect and fears and sphere of our lives and cry out, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Calvin says that even though it depends upon his kingdom, talking about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why? It appears that way. Although we can distinguish the two, we cannot separate the two from Christ's redemptive rule in our lives. And Calvin speaks to this and says even though it depends upon his kingdom, and cannot be separated from it. Still, it is with reason added. Thy will be done is added separately on account of our ignorance, which does not easily or immediately comprehend what it means that God reigns in this world. So as a result of our own spiritual ignorance, that God adds, thy will be done. It has to be connected to thy kingdom come. Thy will be done is also and should be a present reality in our lives. And here we're not talking about God's secret will or his decretive will. For example, we're not asking God, well, when, what time and what date is Christ coming? No, that is God's decretive or secret will. But it is instructive that we come to find out a proper and a right understanding of God's decretive or secret will in his word. It is talking about, thy will be done, it's talking about God's revealed word, his written word. We have cited the catechism that the scriptures teaches us concerning what we should believe, what we ought to believe concerning God and the duties required of man. We're referring to that will. Some blab it and grab it preachers and, and to add that that will be done is a present reality, is a, is a spiritual reality But in God's wisdom, it is a reality of God's goodness. It is a reality of God's goodness. 
There was a blab it and grab it preacher who was caught saying these following words, that praying for the Lord's will to be done is really a stupidity. He calls such prayers a farce and an insult to God's intelligence. In fact, he goes on to say, if you have to say, if it be thy will, or, or if you have to say, thy will be done, then you're calling God a fool. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God provides his words to the Apostle Paul that should correct our understanding concerning this. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you see, as one commentator puts it, in referring to this verse, he says, God's will is good. You see? And this is one of our struggles. Apart from the grace of God, we question God's goodness. Is God good? Is he good? Apart from God's grace, we will conclude that he is not. You see? But this commentator says, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. This means that as we seek to please God and obey his will, we discover that his will is best for us, pleases us, and is perfect for us. Tertullian puts it in this manner. We are even wishing well to ourselves. Thy will be done. Insofar that there is nothing of evil in the will of God. Thy will be done is a call for help. It's a call for the reality, the spiritual reality of Christ's redemptive reign over our lives. Tertullian goes on to say, we are asking that God may supply us with the substance of his will and the capacity to do it. The second main observation we can make from the Lord's Prayer concerning these two petitions is that not only that the kingdom of God is a present reality, a spiritual reality in our lives, that helps us to call out for God's help to do his will, that it is an ongoing and continuing reality. It's a reality not just for today, but for tomorrow. And we see a disparity in our culture, and we feel the weight of the decadence of our culture. And we see, even up to the point of despair, some of us. Christians, some of us believers can be led to that. And we ask ourselves, what does it mean to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
as an ongoing and continuing reality. One, we have to start at home. The Lord's Prayer is a uniquely Christian prayer. See? God's redemptive rule must come to us first. Personally. It's a uniquely Christian prayer. Because this second aspect of this prayer can only be prayed by believers, given new life by the Holy Spirit. And as we see this disparity, first at home, some of our family members, we should be praying for them, that, God's, that Christ's saving rule may come to them as well. We see it in the lives of our friends and neighbors, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In the lives of our friends and neighbors. We pray this for our community. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We pray this for our missionaries as they go around the world with the hopes of planting churches and preaching the gospel of grace. Preaching. Repent. For the kingdom of Christ is here. There's a scholar who puts it in this form concerning the disparity that we see And this second aspect of our prayer, the ongoing, continuing reality of the kingdom of Christ. He says that we acknowledge the disparity between the kingdom in and and the world that now is. We acknowledge with the writer of Hebrews that even though he left nothing outside his control, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. When we pray the second petition, we acknowledge the great disparity that causes creation to groan as with childbirth pangs. That causes us to cry out, how long? How long? That's to say that we're developing an empathy for the fallenness of our neighbors, for the fallenness of our family members, for the fallenness of our community, our nation, and also the unreached people groups of the world. We're asking Christ to establish his rule among the unreached people of the world. We're asking Christ, plant churches in these areas that do not know you, that do not proclaim you, that do not know your sovereign and saving role in their lives. Developing an empathy, we are feeling the weight of the suffering and the brokenness that is around us. 
He goes on to say that at times our longing can bleed over into despair when we see and experience injustice, need, and suffering. But we must recognize the disparity in relation to the reality of Christ's continuing rule, ongoing rule. Our third main observation this evening should be that not only that Christ's kingdom is a present reality, a continuing reality, but it will be a future reality. To pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's to pray with hope. It's to pray for the full realization and the complete consummation of the common kingdom of God. It's to pray that God will reunify heaven and earth. Bring heaven down to earth. See, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of man, the city of man, has tried for thousands of years to accomplish their utopic dream of establishing their own kingdom down here. And the history shows us that they will never succeed because it's an earthly kingdom. It's an evil kingdom. It is not a spiritual kingdom where justice and righteousness rules. It is to pray what the psalmist cites in Psalm 103 Beginning in verse 20, bless the Lord, all you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, all my soul. It is to pray metaphorically speaking, just has the angels move in a speed of light to obey God's word. It is to pray, thy kingdom come, your full kingdom, the full experience of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey fully and perfect God's word. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. It is to pray to see the collapse of the kingdom of Satan. The collapse of the evil kingdom. In the book of Revelation, there's a visionary scene given to the apostle John. And he sees a vision where... Everyone is rejoicing at the fall of this kingdom. It is to pray that God's full 
kingdom, his reunification of heaven and earth to come down here fully in its splendid glory where his and his righteousness alone will reign. In some, in some, I would like to cite two prayers that Martin Luther put in his, into his own words and how he used to pray these two petitions. Thy kingdom come. He states, O dear Lord, God and Father, you see how worldly wisdom and reason not only profane your name and ascribe the honor due to you to lies and to the devil, but how they also take the power, might, wealth, and glory which you have given them on earth for ruling the world and thus serving you and use it in their own ambition to oppose your kingdom. They are many and mighty. They plague and hinder the tiny flock of your kingdom who are weak, despised, and few. They will not tolerate your flock on earth and think that by plaguing them, they render a great and godly service to you. Dear Lord, God and Father, convert them and defend us. Convert those who are still to become children and members of your kingdom so that they with us and we with them may serve you in your kingdom in true faith and unfeigned love, and that from your kingdom which has begun, we may enter into your eternal kingdom. Defend us against those who will not turn away their might and power from the destruction of your kingdom, so that when they are cast down from their thrones and humbled, they will have to cease from their efforts. Amen. Your will be done. O oh, dear Lord, God and Father, you know that the world, if it cannot destroy your name or root out your kingdom, is busy day and night with wicked tricks and schemes, strange conspiracies and intrigue, huddling together in secret counsel, giving mutual encouragement and support, raging and threatening and going about with every evil intention to destroy your name, word, kingdom, and children. Therefore, dear Lord, God and Father, convert them and defend us. Convert those who have yet to acknowledge your good will that they with us and we with them may obey your will and for your sake gladly, patiently, and joyously bear every evil, cross, and adversity, and thereby acknowledge, test, and experience your benign, gracious, and perfect will. And the Lord's people say,